the day that the SEC prosecuted Coinbase, the court threw down an order saying the SEC needed to explain itself as to why it was asking for a whole lot more time to decide Coinbase's application for rulemaking while suing them for apparently breaching the rules. G'day folks, welcome to the Blockchain New Zealand podcast. I'm Jeff Nicey, and you just heard from Mike Pacina speaking about the recent action taken by the SEC against Coinbase's staking products as being unregistered securities. Mike is a former software engineer turned lawyer that chairs the Blockchain Australia organization. In this conversation, we talk about debanking, the regulatory environment in crypto, we touch on CBDCs, BlackRock, and Coinbase. Mike tells us what a blockchain lawyer actually does, and he plugs some of the speakers and events lined up for next week's Blockchain Week, such as Caitlin Long. You can find the lineup at blockchainweek.com.au. Before we get to Mike, a word from our sponsor. The Blockchain New Zealand podcast is brought to you by Easy Crypto. Five years ago, a passionate bunch of Kiwis created Easy Crypto in New Zealand to enable Kiwis and others to buy and sell cryptocurrency. The Easy Crypto website is simple and straightforward. They have heaps of great educational content that caters to both beginners and experts and are very transparent about fees. You can buy crypto with New Zealand dollars or with your credit card and get crypto sent directly to your wallet. Investing in cryptocurrency can of course be risky, so always do your own research. Visit easycrypto.com to start your crypto journey today. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. Pleasure to be here. Coming to us from Sydney today. Hopefully you have a beautiful day there. I do. It's always, always beautiful here. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. So same with me in Auckland, right? Um, very first item on my list, and, I, and I've, I've got this. This is the technical term. I want to ask you about all this banking stuff that has been happening. Um, I'll just throw out a few names here, which, you know, have made headlines in the crypto industry. So we've got SVB, Silicon Valley Bank and Silvergate and Signature, sort of the three S's, uh, which earlier in the past few months have, uh, you know, all had problems uh, with banking. Of, of course, this is US related. Um, and we've also sort of, I'm not sure if it's a trickle down effect, but um, one of our prime issues here in New Zealand as well for, let's say you've got a tech startup and you want to uh, have some crypto payments. Um, these these guys can't get bank accounts. Um, so in terms of banking, that definitely hits home here in New Zealand as well. And so, yeah, what are your impressions of this and what's the scene in Australia? Well, it's a very complicated issue, Jeff. We could probably spend a whole podcast on it. But at a very high level, you've got two things coming together for crypto, crypto banking and crypto debanking. One is it's always hard for banks to bank startups and tech startups. Um, but I think there's a few things in relation to crypto businesses which have tipped um, banks a little further over the line than they ordinarily would have been. So startups have often had problems going in saying, we don't have a history, we have a brand new company, we want to be doing things with a whole lot of transactions going through. So, you know, normal transaction accounts for businesses is generally pretty easy to set up. It's when, particularly when you start to get into things that look like they could involve client asset or client money, that banks can get nervous. Secondly, because of the regulatory uncertainty around crypto assets, banks have compliance departments have also been nervous about the AML-CTF risk. There is very strict rules in global banking around trying to mitigate the risk of AML-CTF um, in certain payments. Uh, and while it's a flexible principles-based approach with, with risk assessment, there's a great deal of uncertainty in the crypto industry in particular about what exactly they need to do to satisfy banks. And there's a little bit of a to and fro here because 
if the bad guys know exactly what banks are looking for, you know, a really programmable system of what should be done to avoid checks, well, then they can try and operate really strictly. So there's always been this principles-based approach to keep some flexibility. Um, coupled with the rise of scammers trying to use crypto as payment rails without realizing how traceable it is and thus how they'll eventually would likely to get caught for their crimes, when a bank gets complaints in saying, uh, oh, someone has been dudded and there was some crypto involved. Unfortunately, that feeds into this ongoing narrative we've seen the last few years. A fascinating thing just happened this week in France, um, where a new law has just been made, uh, putting fines and up to two-year penalties on influencers who peddle scams. So not just cryptocurrency scams, they've had all sorts of scams, including a really awful one where influencers were peddling a shampoo, which actually made people's hair fall out, which is just awful. Oh, um, yeah. But France, rather sensibly, instead of going after the shampoo industry and saying, oh, you're responsible for this terrible product that a bad person is doing, um, France has taken a pretty sensible move in saying, hey, where are the scams actually coming from? And they've said, influencers are pushing these around. Let's hold influencers liable for what the content they're putting out. Uh, and this struck me as really sensible because focusing on the uh, on-ramp of scams um, instead of perhaps the on-ramp of crypto seems like a really sensible place to, to um, have prevention and education around scams. Uh, there's this incredible statistics floating around the internet this week about, you know, 45% of millennials are turning to TikTok for financial advice, which is shocking um, because there is no real way for financial planners in Australia, and I doubt very much in New Zealand, for financial advice to be pushed out easily on social media. So a lot of that quote-unquote advice that's being put out right. on social media is completely unregulated and being put out by people with zero to no qualifications to do it. Now, they may be very skilled and actually be putting out sensible stuff, but that's not the point. The point is assuring that there's some standards that are met and that people are taking the care to ensure that they are not um, giving the wrong information, or as we've seen in the French case, a whole bunch of scams being peddled around things that look like investments. Uh, and of course, in Australia last year, ASIC pulled in a bunch of Finfluencers, as they were called, and read them the Riot Act um, about what kind of content had been posted online, and that led to some guidelines from ASIC so influencers could see this is what you need to stay away from. So it's very interesting to see that coming out this week around a, a strategy that could help prevent scams, and that does fit into the debanking because getting those scams stopped in the first place stops complaints coming down the pipeline later on, which impacts crypto businesses, exchanges, and can, help, can hurt their um, keeping of, of stable banking. And this, of course, is very, of course, very separate to the U.S., where we have seen um, a law firm actually publish a white paper. Cooper and Kirk is the lawyers, and they published a white paper called Operation Chokepoint 2.0, The Federal Bank Regulators Come for Crypto. And I'd certainly urge your readers to have a Google of that and download it. You might be able to put a link in the show notes. Uh, yep. That's the firm that acted in relation to the first Operation Chokepoint, which was a nearly off-books American government, not to get the tin hat conspiracy theory on, but choke, uh, Operation Chokepoint was an Obama administration effort to cut off banking to morally undesirable sectors of the US economy, including cannabis, guns, um, pornography, things like that. Um, and once it was brought out into the light, it had to end because the federal government ought not be deciding who should or should not have banking. But by putting quiet pressure on banks in the background, they could make that happen. So Cooper and Kirk, who acted in the lawsuit that shut down Operation Chokepoint 1, has published a white paper saying, this all looks rather the same again. Uh, and that goes to some issues around the Silicon Valley Bank shutdown and Signature Bank, where there were rumors and reported 
um, commentary that the buyers of of bank assets would not be able to take crypto business and would have to decline crypto business in the future. So there's a really strong signal that there's been some kind of um, federal government involvement at the US end actively pushing banks not to bank crypto. And that may have died down now that it's been called out in the open and they have a very robust system in America with freedom of speech that people can come out and call it out very openly. I've seen no signs of anything like that happening in Australia or New Zealand. Yep. And, I, and I think that there's no history of it like there was in America with um, that Obama administration program. So I, I personally think that the debanking issues are come from the legacy narrative issues of crypto having a bad reputation of being involved in, uh, in Silk Road and there being an education gap. Uh, where perhaps people in compliance departments didn't understand it as much. But I think we're seeing that being overcome in recent years. And certainly with NAB and ANZ Bank in Australia issuing their own stable coins, we're seeing banks understand, look, this is a really innovative space where we can do exciting things and work towards the future of payments. Are they, uh, for those banks that are issuing stable coins, are they calling these crypto assets in the same sentence as you would mention Bitcoin or Ethereum? Or are they saying, oh, hang on, it's a, it's a bank issued thing. It's a bit different. I think their positioning it from a marketing perspective is a bit different. But the core point of it is that um, these are, in fact, able to be moved around on public blockchains. And so the critical point of a commercial bank issued digital currency, which personally, I think is the likely future versus a central bank digital currency is that these can interact with smart contracts. Um, they are currently, of course, fairly restricted in how you can use them and they're piloting them and looking at different ways of uh, how those currencies can interact with smart contracts, looking at marketplaces around, I think ANZ has specifically mentioned carbon markets to say, well, hang on, you can't do instant settlement on a carbon market unless you're using a crypto asset. And hey, here we have a crypto asset that could let you have instant settlement and it's as good as cash. Um, so. There's some really interesting experiments in that space, which again may help with that, you know, debanking issue, or it may even help with banks moving towards, hey, here's a currency that can be used natively with smart contracts. That's the exciting part there, because once you have smart contracts that can interact with very stable, stable coins, including commercial bank issued ones, you have choice. Um, I totally understand the criticisms being levied at CBDCs around surveillance, and some of those could be levied at commercial bank digital currencies as well. But I also take the view that most of those criticisms about surveillance um, also equally apply to our current banking system. Um, and we have checks and balances around that, including court supervision and court orders that have to be obtained. So there's definitely going to be a path for at least commercial bank issued digital currency, if not central bank issued digital currency in some way. And the CBDCs might be at the wholesale level between the banks, yeah. because it wouldn't make much sense for a commercial bank to issue $20 million or $100 million and then have a run on their bank suddenly that if there's a shared banking approach to a commercial bank issued currency, you know, they don't want there to be some risk of a, of a liquidity crisis. And for the CBDC point here, like, is everyone going to happily work together on this, right? What, what do you make of the risk of disintermediation? If uh, CBDC gets pushed out, then the banks are looking around going, hang on, you don't need us anymore. Well, I think the banks are being sensible and starting to push out their own product. So by, by saying where is the efficiency and and there is you know we've seen a lot of challenges to to moving from zero to to ten when it comes to let's disintermediate everyone you have certainly hardcore libertarian bitcoiners and others who say yes we should be doing everything on smart contracts um, and taking a very strict approach the challenge is there is a pathway to further decentralization and it likely comes from 
using the efficiencies in blockchain to start to get existing businesses in there. And some of those will be intermediaries because if you can further commoditize at an economic level and make more efficient what, the, what an intermediary is doing, that should have the effect of pushing down the price for end users. So you might be able to have a journey or even find some things that we don't want to fully disintermediate. The, the, the cold reality is you're not going to get rid of the banks because you need to borrow to buy a house or an apartment. So I find it always challenging when people say, yes, we want to you know, be your own bank. Be I don't want to borrow for myself to buy my house because I, I don't have the money to lend to myself to buy a house. No, neither does anyone who's, who's getting out there. So unless you're fortunate enough to have made enough cash quickly, crypto or otherwise, to buy a house for cash, you need somewhere to live. And 30% plus yeah. of people in Australia have a mortgage. That mortgage comes from banks. So uh, there's very few non-bank lenders who you can turn to. So it's going to be a long time to disintermediate banks full stop. Also, people want a place to put their money. They don't feel comfortable with the digital money under the mattress of MetaMask, for example. Um, you know, Even people in crypto might have some of their assets held in, in say, MetaMask or some online point. But many people still, you've still got all these legacy banking um, links. They're not going to go away in a hurry. Even at your fastest rate of disintermediating some market, um, you know, what's our best example? Online banking and online payments. Um, Australia still hasn't phased out checks. They're incredibly rare. And I think the last <laughs> time I saw a check was when I cancelled a car registration. And for some reason, the New South Wales government gave me a check which of course was offensive because they were happy to take my money under credit card when I paid for registration, but for a refund, they <laughs> issued a bank check. Um, and I hadn't seen a bank check for a check of any kind for years, but other countries are still quite dependent on checks. And I think Australia is looking at a multi-year phase out. I think New Zealand phased out checks really fast. We're done. COVID had them done with. Yeah. So I, I think Australia could do the same thing, but there are, there are legacy systems, particularly in government, that take a bit longer to to go through and modernize, which is just because it's just a cost of doing so. And there isn't always money in the budget to make sure these things will happen quickly. Uh, I wish there was, and I'm sure many in the government wish there were, because it's just faster than having to have all these checks outstanding and sitting around. So I think there will be a, a cycle of more efficiency coming from these things with the intermediaries and new intermediaries. But there's still going to be this tail, just yeah. like checks, where just because you can replace them doesn't mean people actually want them to be replaced yet. And so there might be this generational shift that as new generation comes up demanding these things and saying, I don't want to touch checks, then they won't exist because it's a market pull. Does that make sense? Yeah, The um, just a comment on a few things there. Uh, you're right. Self-custody is scary. And like, it's not something that anyone has grown up with yet. We're, we're not We're not used to this. And uh, certainly for me, as soon as you get into like four or five figures, um, you know, maybe you start to lose a little bit of sleep uh, thinking about how you're going to manage these private keys. Um, and on, on the other hand, though, like censorship and surveillance can also be terrifying and scary. And so, you know, we, we want to trust our large institutions. Uh, and it's like, well, who do you trust more? Is there a happy medium here? Uh, and also the more the mortgage example, right? Like that's such a good essential service. And I don't think like the the Bitcoiners and the libertarians have a real good way, have a real good solution for this just yet. Like if you're, uh, I don't know, not, nowadays you have to be like into your forties before you're like buying your own, buying your own house. But then like you said, you're not buying, you're not buying it in cash, are you? And so, you know, who's, who's going to front that risk? Uh, and so, you know, uh, I agree. We're, we're not going to be able to wipe everything out uh, any anytime soon. That's right. And certainly, as long as banks have offset accounts, it's an incredibly attractive place 
tick store money that helps save interest on a loan. And that further entrenches that product. And I, and I appreciate there's some people in crypto who have said to me, oh, there is some on-chain mortgage products, but they're very, currently the UX is not user-friendly and quite difficult to, to work with. So the, uh, we probably advised in my capacity as a lawyer, probably a dozen different you know, projects trying to put real estate on the blockchain. And yep. it's very hard to do because the, the, the registry services at government level are not made up for it. And they will come as they start to come become more blockchain friendly, then we will start to see then unlocking from the top. But I think there's a real place for government as a trusted information provider or a trusted registry to run their systems with blockchain in a way that keeps privacy, but unlocks a whole bunch of really, really interesting products. And I totally get the libertarians will say, government can't be trusted to do that. And fine, I appreciate that view, but I just also have a very realistic view of seeing how the economy works coming from an economics background of saying, how do you actually make people change? Change, change is hard. Um, and there isn't enough of a benefit so far unless you want to take on that technical debt of learning blockchain and understanding the technical part, just like the early internet, that if you really understood bulleted board systems and rigging up, you know, dialing into a server, you could do cool things. But most people didn't want to dial into a server because you had to know some code to do it. You had to like play around with your computers. So there's this subset of people that are doing it now. We're in the same place with a lot of blockchain is the, the nerdier folk, myself included, <laughs> I say that I say that as a term of endearment, will do this stuff that's a bit harder UX wise, but but my when my mum starts doing it or my auntie starts doing it or one of my sisters or somebody something goes, oh this is really cool. I could do this easily, that's when we'll start to say, okay, that's when the change is coming. When people who who are just not tech savvy at all can do it really, really easily. And so seeing like NFT tickets coming out for you know performances in concert are really interesting because they're the leading wedge of, oh, people can go and just do that and buy tickets. So I think SI Sports has just done a self-serve um, NFT linked program that's free like Eventbrite, charges no fees for free events, yep. but has built-in proof of attendance protocol tokens and collectible NFTs for your event. So starting to see those platforms come out, which do that, are starting to bring um, you know the quote-unquote normies along that can just go, we just don't care what, what it's doing. We just know that it delivers benefits and value to us. Do you think uh, you mentioned about some of your... Uh older, more technical, uh, nerdy days, plug it into bulletin board systems through a 2400 baud modem or something <laughs> like that. Um, so you've been watching crypto for a while. Ha have we made any strides in this area? Like if you think about MetaMask, I mean, they're still criticized heavily for like being way too crazy. You want to like do, do some swaps and uh, send some stuff around for being way too uh, inefficient. You know, where are the UX designers, people say, right? Um, so not just MetaMask, but overall, do you think we've made, made any progress there? Well, MetaMask is a perfect example, Jeff, because if you looked at MetaMask years ago, it's just an absolute disaster to use from a UX perspective. So compared to what it was, it's so much better. Um, but even now, yes, people say, well, it's not low friction enough, but, it, but we've come a long way. And just like the early internet, these, these steps as the early stages um, lay down really, you know, laying down foundational technology is, is extremely hard. Building on top of tech, foundational technology becomes easier over time. And so it's the same as that early internet connections that were being made, spreading out from bulletin boards. Um, we've, but we're building on top of the internet. So some things are really fast. Once you're inside the tent, you can do these amazing things. But that UX has always been a consistent problem. There's a lot of really bright minds working on it. Um, I think that because we still have that open source nature of smart contracts that continually allows an advancement of overall knowledge and standing on the shoulders of smarter and smarter people with composability really helps the back end plumbing. 
But that front-end UX is where my brain goes to, look, that's where we have, are going to still have intermediaries because you still fundamentally, for a lot of projects, have to trust the web interface, right? Uniswap Labs runs the web interface for Uniswap. Yeah. You can go straight to the smart contract. I wouldn't, even though I know how. I just find it too technically scary. I'm far more comfortable trusting that web interface, same deal as MetaMask. But you're right. It is a point of friction that's hard. And trying to get things to, to a zone of, you know, click in with Google and then just click here to do this. Uh, I think I saw one solution a few years ago, which, you know, stored the private keys inside Google G Drive so it could leverage the Google logins to do things, which was kind of a cool solution. But it still left, you know, private keys sitting on a G Drive that <laughs> is, not, is, is far from ideal. So it was only really suitable for small value amounts and the, and you'd have to recognize that people using it wouldn't appreciate the exposure that they might have so you might see some some things that are a bit more hot wallet style greater risk of potential online theft but might have caps on what could be put through it so it acts like a genuine you know pocket of a little bit of money that could be doing things yep. online that you could pull more into from another source but doesn't really have a huge amount of loss that could happen at one hit um, those kinds of ways of you know making the ux work but centralizing necessarily as a response I think there's a lot of space in the central central bank or commercial bank digital currencies that will be doing that because you're already using a centralized issuer of a currency there. You might as well have the centralized um, interface like on internet banking. And then if you're if you're trusting your inter, your intermediary there and the intermediary is doing it like a utility, very low cost, very commodified, there's still huge benefit there. And then you can be accessing all these super benefits of decentralization with interesting exotic DeFi things or smart contracts that do funky stuff that you want or collectibles that you can sell later or move around digitally and keep safe in immutable storage. So I think there's a huge amount that could be done there. And then do we reach increasingly over time more and more decentralization? Hopefully, but the market kind of finds a, finds a medium of where it's happy. Um, I, I don't think it'll end up going to that internet, and I certainly hope it wouldn't, of that internet zone of being very decentralized and then moving back into these you know social media silos. Yeah. Where you had MySpace owning that, and then MySpace fell down while other ones came up, and Facebook's been huge, and then Facebook seems to be on the wane, and then you have flavor of the month social media that that builds on network effects. I'm hopeful that our network effects for the backend smart contracts will be sufficiently powerful that it will keep that in a very decentralized way. You uh, sound like an optimist. Is that fair to say? I'm a cautious optimist. <laughs> <laughs> You can be an optimist until uh, you get into contract law. <laughs> I do a lot of contract laws. I'm still an optimist. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Did you happen to catch Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s speech at Bitcoin 2023? That one I did not, but uh, he is a man who says some fairly um, inflammatory things from time to time. And by time to time, I mean most of the time. <laughs> He, uh, he, he really brought it to the Bitcoin crowd uh, about the only thing he said that the Bitcoiners might not like is talking about the environment. But that's, that's not what I want to ask you about. Um, he mentioned in there, so he's running for president. He's a Democratic presidential candidate. And of course, he's JFK's nephew. Mm. Uh, so in, in his speech, this was just last month, he mentioned about, um, you know, allowing people or making it such that people had the right to run their own node in a decentralized network. So, you know, he's talking about people running a Bitcoin node, which, and they're perhaps, if they're running like a lightning node, they're perhaps, you know, almost maybe brokering transactions between uh, different parties on the network, depending on how you look at it. Uh, and he also then said, he said, you know, KYC 
is for banks and exchanges and not for individual operators. Uh, so just about the KYC point, um, when we spoke before, you mentioned to me that all this AML stuff is sort of like wildly expensive. Um, and so, you know, how expensive is it in terms of our time and energy to do all this? And um, are we going to like get to a point where we we just like drown in our our AML, our CFT and our KYC? Well, that's always a balance, Jeff. So I think some numbers that stuck with me, and I think it was from last year, was that you know the estimated global illicit fund flow, not just crypto, everything, is $3 trillion a year. And the AML CTF compliance costs globally are estimated at, um, I think, the direct costs at $300 billion plus the indirect time costs. And the outcome of all of that is about $3 billion of recovered illicit funds, which seems, from a utilitarian perspective, a pretty poor return on investment. Now, I don't have the exact details of research, and perhaps there's an argument that if we didn't spend that $300 billion on compliance costs, the illicit usage would shoot up to $6 trillion. I don't know. Um, but those numbers don't seem to be a great return on investment for humans spending their lives running this stuff. I also appreciate there's an argument that AML-CTF is the worst possible system for compliance and reducing crime and terrorist financing, except for all the alternatives. Um, so there's a, a bit of a necessary evil around it, but we certainly should be looking to make it as low friction and as highly efficient as possible. I think the biggest problem that sits there at the moment is when a whole lot of different businesses have to collect ID and store it for seven years, that creates honeypots for scammers and hackers to attack those businesses and try and steal ID. And the looming tsunami wave of scams using AI is coming because right now when I used AI this morning to help write a LinkedIn post for an article I wrote, Yep. On the French on the French scam laws, you know the fact that it can write a really nice um, post for me. It also tried to write a little summary of an article for me that had fake quotes in it, which was um, a little bit of a, a frustration that we still have to Cute. deal with that hallucination. But the quotes were great. They looked like something out of an article. It's just they were from from made up people and made up publications. But scammers can use that to really connect with people, um, and so that. Is a, is a huge problem that current AML CTF doesn't really solve. If someone is getting scammed and has been convinced to hand over their ID, those scammers can effectively defeat the best AML CTF we have now in most systems because fundamentally, if a person's willing to hand over 100 points of identification and let someone else use it or let someone else take control of their computer, there's almost nothing you can do. That person could log into a bank and transfer money out. They could then log, they could log into their crypto account and move move things out. And that's really hard. So we have this massive problem of um, scammers are very sophisticated. They're, they're reinvesting their profits that they make in scamming and doing better scams and using AI. And that's a, it's a super hard problem. Uh, we actually have a roundtable set for next week that Blockchain Australia is hosting. I'm the chair of Blockchain Australia. And we have some really high level and impressive individuals coming to join that roundtable. It will run under Chatham House rules, but we'll have some, some um, commentary coming out of it. And that's directly to deal with this scam issue and seeing what can be happening at the banking level, um, where we're seeing, you know, in Australia, we saw an introduction of frictions in payments being made to um, crypto exchanges. So that's something really exciting to keep an eye out for for next week. And certainly, um, there's also some other reporting that Blockchain Australia should be coming out with around scams and digital currency exchanges. And Chainalysis does great, great data as well around that space. But I think that when you get down to, you know, RFK, and, you know, running a node shouldn't be controversial, you're just running a hosting device like an internet host. Uh, if you're running an internet host that's hosting illegal content, okay, fine, you're responsible for it because you're running the website. But certainly um, we don't see Amazon 
web server being held liable for hosting something that one of their customers hosts illegal content. If it finds right. out, if someone finds out it's illegal, they turn it off. Similarly, if you're running a node, which is just one of very many that is providing consensus for a blockchain network, it seems counterintuitive for each node to have the responsibility as if it was making the payment itself. Um, that would effectively be a shadow ban on blockchain as a technology. Uh, and we try not to regulate technology. You know, every every server on the internet which relays internet banking traffic is not causing a payment to be made. It's not running something. It shouldn't be checking that with OFAC somehow. The bank who initiates the payment is dealing with that. Or the person who's sending the Venmo or, or PayPal relies upon Venmo or PayPal for checking the destination account. So there are ways to manage it. I don't think that it's helpful to when um, policymakers or regulators or, or politicians misunderstand what a node is and try to put rules around yeah. these to say, well, and, and you know, there is complicated things where people say, well, what if a node's participation in a transaction breaches OFAC guidelines or whatnot? I think, you know, the, the you know, the whole, everything that happened with Tornado Cash is a tragedy because it was really a regulation of technology versus the activities. If you, you, you know, if you can find the people behind them and people should try, you know, regulators and police and enforcement should hunt down people who are doing the wrong thing. And many times blockchain helps in hunting down that trail. But simply saying that a privacy device should be, the people behind a privacy device should be liable for everything that it's used for seems to me too close to be saying, well, Nike should be responsible for criminals running away quickly from crime scenes because they're wearing their sneakers that help them run faster. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense, right? A tool can be used for good or evil. You've got to figure out the person who's, do, who's committing the both guilty act and having the guilty mind, that's the touchstone of criminal law. You don't say, you know, the shovel manufacturer is liable for the murderer using a shovel to dig a hole to bury a body. That doesn't make any sense. People understand those analogies. So understanding what technology is and what tools that it gives you might help you in identifying what are the activities that need to be regulated and what is the risk you're really trying to manage for. Yeah. And, you know, in terms of, you know, in terms of the technical side of things, if you're running a node, uh, we never even talked about this uh, 10, 10 years ago, if, if you were running an email server, maybe you're running your own email server, right? No one, no one was saying like, hang on, you're uh, facilitating the traffic of messages. And uh, I love the Nike example. My, my favorite one to use is like about Toyota, right? The world's best selling truck. Uh, and it, the, the trucks last like 30, 40 years, and they're all all over like war zones. And, uh, and you know, we're, we're not like uh, boycotting Toyota manufacturing because of that. That's right. I think, I think you've got to focus on where is the risk really there and what is the best return on investment to mitigate certain risks. We have innovators out there who are risking their livelihoods trying to start up businesses and do things. You know, Innovation and life comes with risk, but it's never politically profitable to get up and say, well, we're not going to do anything because this is an acceptable risk profile for what's out there. There is some balance to be struck and it, there is always a trade-off of that risk and reward. And it's very hard. Policymakers have an unenviable task of striking that risk because you cannot eliminate risk entirely. But when that risk starts to show up in media, it creates problems that, that people have to deal with. And I think that you know, no one ever really can argue with, hey, we don't want any crime. We'd like to minimize crime. Everyone, of course, no one's going to disagree with that. Of course. Um, but if it was mandated that I had to put giant inch thick bars on my house, really ugly bars that I don't want because my house, at some point I would presumably say, well, hang on a minute, I have the freedom to have my house how I want to have it. And if I want the freedom to leave my window open a crack for breeze and understand there's some risk that comes with that, should, do I have some right to do so? Um, and, and at some level, there is that, that, that point that comes through. But it's very hard at policy level because at policy level, you really do want to try and minimize the harm that could come to people 
without going into a nanny state. Uh, it's, it's really hard problems. And this is why I would probably never be a politician because they have a job that is so hard and they just take heat from it and get criticized and they work so very hard um, and huge hours and get and just get hit all the time. And, and sometimes they don't have good they don't have good choices to make there. They're always going to have to choose some level of risk that will come with any kind of policy design. So all they can do is consult as closely as possible with industry, try and hear from everyone and then try and strike a very, very difficult balance. This past week, BlackRock has filed for an ETF in in America. Uh, do you think that uh, they they have uh, you know minimizing harm on on the checklist of reasons why all these ETFs in America have been denied? Uh, I've got a little laundry list here, right? Canada has three, um, Brazil has one, EU through Germany and Switzerland have exchanged traded notes in Bitcoin. Uh, I found two. Bitcoin ones in Australia and two Ether ones. Um, so like, why would you not want this product uh, as a financial service? I don't see very good reasons for blocking these. I, I understand there's an overarching principle that our financial services laws in Australia, UK, pretty much everywhere, America, grew up around centralized markets and centralized players. So, you know, your futures in frozen orange concentrates which everyone knows from trading places, which is also a real thing in America for the, all the frozen orange juice concentrate that comes out of Florida. But that um, market, you've got these centralized players. And I think that regulators get very nervous, as do market operators, around something that's more decentralized, even though to a degree, you know, there might be 20 providers of frozen orange juice concentrate. So there is a market with various players who are in there. But something like Bitcoin, because of the way it operates and looks an awful lot like a commodity or a piece of property, but no one controls it, fundamentally worries people. And this narrative of illicit use in the AML-CTF context worries people as well. Um, and you see that in the international, you know, Bank of International Settlements and IOSCO papers that come out. And they always talk about how do we minimize the, risk of the risks of these products? And it's frustrating for people in the industry who say, well, who's talking about the benefits of them and balancing the benefits with those risks? Because a focus on risk, 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 which has always been a touchstone of financial services to say people are putting their money in the hands of other people. We need to keep it safe. It makes perfect sense. Um, but these, we've seen when you, there's a, there's a clear difference between futures, ETFs that deal with futures, yep. because those ETFs are just dealing with a financial product, which is being issued by a counterparty. Uh, so someone can take a gamble essentially, or an investment on the future price of a commodity, whether it's Bitcoin or something else. And then you have these um, ETFs, or in the case of BlackRock, it's technically a trust. And I know that's big, a bit lawyerly. Oh, okay. Very, okay, go on. It's actually structured very much like the Grayscale Trust with an important difference. The BlackRock Trust will allow redemptions, whereas the, the um, Grayscale Trust does not. And that, of course, is why the Grayscale Trust has disconnected from the price of Bitcoin, because you cannot redeem. Um, whereas the critical thing with, with the BlackRock one is they've done plenty of these and many of these other trusts they set up get called ETFs because people just colloquially refer to them as such. Technically, right. it's not a fund. Mm. Technically, it's a trust where they're just holding the asset. But leaving aside that legal distinction, so it's closer to grayscale, but with the important redemption twist, most people may not care because at the end of the day, they say, awesome, we can buy a regulated product. As soon as it's a regulated product, the door opens to investment funds, the doors open to superannuation and pension funds, and financial advisors can finally say, oh, our insurance covers us if we provide advice in relation to financial products. No one has been able to say whether or not Bitcoin is or is not. And certainly in America, um, Mr. Gensler 
has said he doesn't think Bitcoin is a financial product or a security. He just thinks everything else is. But when you come down to it, that door being opened for uh, institutions and others to come into a framework they already know. This goes back to this point I'm, I was mentioning about existing rails and existing intermediaries being able to gain advantage, the advantage of decentralized things. This provides a bit of a pathway for people to get in and say, well, I did want access to it, but I don't want to run my own wallet. I don't want to have that technical overhead of trying to figure out how to do that. Oh, these people will do that for me. I'm effectively paying them in the same way that if I wanted exposure to the price of frozen orange juice concentrate or coffee beans, I can buy an ETF or a trust which holds those and pay somebody else to manage the exposure to those products um, so that the end person can have that balance. Because then you have you know, funds that are trying to buy a little bit of everything or they're trying to hedge or someone says, I want to put 1% of my um, wealth here because I think it's a speculative asset that maybe goes to zero, maybe goes up a huge amount, but I don't want too much in there. This provides a, an avenue to do that. So I suppose I don't get on the bandwagon of the Bitcoiners who are saying, oh, this is awesome. This will unleash the fury and, and pump our bags and the price will go up and everyone will, will get really rich because we're the early ones. I think that's, a, that's not a very sensible way of looking at it. I think looking at it from a perspective of this is great because it gives people more access to have choice is a better way of considering this move. And it is also promising because BlackRock have a very long history of getting um, through the products they wish to put through to market. And commentators online have, of course, said, well, BlackRock wouldn't have put in an application without having the preliminary discussions and thus knowing that this should go through because that is a path to products. You want to consult early. You don't just charge in and put in an application to see how it'll go. You'll often, if you wish to put a product forward, you go and engage with the regulators to say, let's have a talk about this and make sure it's as lined up as it can be so that we're not running into problems through the process. It was interesting to me that Coinbase is named as the custody provider in there, given that the SEC are currently both suing Coinbase and being sued by Coinbase and having issues around that. Um, so that's an interesting part of it from the lawyer side of me trying to, you know, trying to look and see where's that going to go? Because here we have, well, if the SEC is suing Coinbase and then approves BlackRock's ETF or trust, which involves Coinbase custody, right. they're at least subtly indicating, well, yes, we think the Coinbase custody is technically suitable for the product that you're putting in your trust. Um, but uh, Coinbase custody is inevitably impacted in some way by the SEC suing Coinbase's exchange side of the business, even though it's probably technically a separate company with different controls. There's still a bit of narrative there that's a cognitive dissonance around that. Do you think Coinbase has a reasonable case like de defense against the charges? I've been following the Mandamus case with um, really closely, and I was very interested to see the court on its own motion the day that the SEC prosecuted Coinbase, the court threw down an order saying the SEC needed to explain itself as to why it was um, asking for a whole lot more time to decide Coinbase's application for rulemaking while suing them for apparently breaching the rules. So Coinbase has done a very, very good job of drawing to the light the inconsistencies in the approach. They, For context, they put a, a petition in for rulemaking at the SEC um, early last year, I think, asking would the SEC please make rules for these uncertain areas? Um, the SEC has had you know, material come to light from many years ago talking about the gaps. All of a sudden this year, post FTX, Mr. Gensler has been saying publicly and repeatedly, the rules are clear, the rules are clear, whereas it rather seems that the SEC internally from the documents that have come out publicly has been saying for quite some time inside of its own organization, the rules are very unclear. Now, the entire industry has been singing with one voice. The rules are unclear, there are gaps. Um, 
the position of saying the rules are clear only makes sense in the context of suggesting that anyone involved in crypto assets should be registered as an existing centralized financial product or exchange with all of the things that come with that, many of which simply don't work in a decentralized world. So it's it's quite confusing what's happening there with the SEC's public messaging um, from the chair, but also what's come out from internally over there. I think that, again, America is an interesting place with a lot of transparency that comes with regulators, and it's certainly an area to watch closely. I think that the Coinbase litigation is one to watch really, really closely. Um, they are a company that obviously became public and went through a process of disclosing all of their operations to the SEC years ago and were given the tick to go public. Um, the Binance litigation is in a completely different um, basket because of the kinds of allegations there are fairly serious, but also there's been some interesting developments in recent days around um, the SEC not having any evidence that there's been any kind of mishandling of funds between entities, which was one of these core allegations that was brought in the original proceedings um, and now seem to have some evidentiary challenges with it. So both of those pieces of litigation are going to take years to resolve. And by the time they do, the regulatory side hopefully will have moved on. But America has a very divided Congress. So it's very hard for some regulatory action to come through um, Congress to lay down laws, but we are seeing progress being made with, with various acts being proposed. So it's really promising to see that happen. Um, we're seeing other countries like the MICA legislation in Europe, you know, moving towards a framework that is workable and that the industry can go into to both keep the advantages of this decentralized system, but also address risks that still remain. Because it's not without risks. Simply because you can eliminate counterparty risk with atomic settlement doesn't mean you don't have smart contract risk. And it's just a different kind of risk that has to be managed. And it's not a risk that um, we've seen under traditional financial services laws, where there might be an obligation on um, a party to make sure that their uh, order book is working, for example, and that they have processes and systems in place. If you can automate all of that, perhaps it's more appropriate to have requirements around order to get a smart contract such that it will do what it says it does um, and different controls. And so that's the part that I think regulators around the world are doing a great job at learning of and are starting to come forward with solutions. I should also shamelessly shill blockchain week next week in Australia. Uh, the Thursday is a great global day with some amazing um, speakers coming in, including Hester Pierce of the SEC uh, on Thursday morning. Those will be broadcast uh, and recorded online. So if your listeners are listening a bit later than uh, next week and or coming in after the end of June, to catch up on their busy block, block, uh, podcast lists, they will be able to go back and look at these. And some of those comments will be quite relevant and interesting to get to get some information. I'll certainly be um, tuning in to, to hear some of those discussions. And I'm also uh, chairing a panel in the afternoon on, on next Thursday as well. All the in-person events are the other, other days of the week, which are all completely sold out. There's some wait lists available if people are in Sydney or in on the Monday or Brisbane on the Wednesday or Melbourne on the Friday. Um, they can certainly put themselves down on a wait list and see if something uh, becomes available, uh, but it's looking like a pretty blockbuster blockchain week for next week. Okay, so Thursday is the online streaming portion? That's Global Day, yes. So that's where everything will be online and streaming. So we've got Caitlin Long in the morning. We've got Hester Pierce coming in after that. We've got Kristen Smith of the US Blockchain Association. We've got uh, Zero Hash and Tasty Trade having a chat. We've got um, the an interesting... Queensland police detective and chain analysis training specialist uh, and forensic examiner looking into how you know blockchains are being used to solve criminal cases and, and chase down scammers. Uh, we've got we've got discussions around building compliant blockchain systems uh, and discussing what's holding up things in the APAC region. 
and also one of my um, team at Piper Alderman is uh, moderating an AML CTS standards discussion in the afternoon as well. Uh, Caitlin Long, she's great, right? And uh, she she went out and uh, made made her own bank um, in uh, the state the the grand state of Wyoming. Uh, I've never been, but uh, uh, I mean she's great on her social media. Uh, similar to Coinbase, she keeps everyone informed on uh, on all the progress or lack thereof about what's happening. That's right. She's very public on Twitter. I'd certainly encourage all your um, listeners to uh, follow her on Twitter. She very much very open about putting forward all of the concerns. I think just this morning she's published an interesting list of federal Federal Reserve account holders, which she wished Custodia to be one of and was rejected. And I think that list makes for some interesting reading as to who else managed to be given the very thing that Custodia was denied, uh, because there's a lawsuit going on at the moment where she is alleging that Custodia has been essentially frozen out of getting that Federal Reserve status, which in the US is very important, because without that um, status, a bank or payment provider can't plug in properly to other banks and be part of what's going on. They can't deliver the product they wish to deliver. With regards to uh, to you, uh, you have a blockchain team at your firm, is that correct? Uh, that's right. So I've been heading up the blockchain team at Piper Alderman for, gosh, um, nearly seven years. So been quite busy, got back a, a fair way in the space. And so what type of uh, clients or uh, cases uh, are you involved with? So obviously we have client confidentiality, but we have advised um, most of the Australian digital currency exchanges and global exchanges. We help them with various AML, CTF and contracts and other crypto matters. We also act for a number of DAOs um, and assist projects that are looking at their product and trying to analyze what rules will apply because we have these really novel products coming out that have just operated in ways that we've never seen before. So uh, thankfully, once upon a time, I was a software developer for a brief moment back in the dot-com days. Um, and I'm very interested in how things tick uh, technologically. So we, we unashamedly have a team of nerds at heart who love to understand you know what our clients are doing and really figure out what's going on in this in the and uh, the use of smart contracts and, and how real value is being delivered there versus existing products that they might be disrupting over time which is which is really fun and that's what i enjoy a lot in the space um, and then obviously i'm involved with consulting with and putting submissions in with the government both through uh, blockchain australia and with task force to try and ensure that the policy discussion is going in the right direction here um, and certainly where we can um, help overseas as well, coordinating with our um, associations overseas to try and help ensure standards are going to be the same because we don't want to race to the bottom in terms of countries trying to attract blockchain businesses because that will cause problems. So we need to work out, make sure that the standards are going to apply. And if there's licensing in one place, it can get recognition elsewhere. So I think we'll see from a reg front, you know, centralized exchange licensing and custody, which is going to be a you know, wonderful help for preventing things like the collapses we saw last year um, and minimizing the risk over that. And then, you know, later on in the future, we'll be seeing more engagement of regulators and policymakers around, you know, DeFi and really decentralized products and things to see how and whether they need any kind of regulation around those or whether it's going to move to a point where centralized intermediaries will provide enough protection for users that that part can be let to stay more experimental. Because you may end up with a space where there's the super spicy and experimental DeFi, and then there's decentralized or more distributed systems run by existing players that can help bring the benefits of of that um, into a broader world. Like we're seeing some businesses in America looking at breaking down the walled gardens of global stock exchanges so that shares, which currently are trapped on, on a single exchange, you know, if you wanted to buy 
you know, a dual listed business, like I, I believe BHP is listed in the London Stock Exchange and Sydney Stock Exchange, but um, sorry, the Australian Stock Exchange. You can't buy a share on the Australian Stock Exchange for BHP and sell it on the on the UK Stock Exchange. They're technically okay. separate separate sets of shares. And that made sense 30, 40 years ago. But with the technology we have with distributed ledger, that doesn't make as much sense now. Why, you know, people say, but why shouldn't we be able to have these shares trading in different exchanges, like a more like coffee futures or or frozen orange juice concentrates or whatnot? It creates more opportunities for liquidity for some of these um, financial products and also more opportunities for them to be used for borrowing and things like that that you can do in a way that's uh, fully automated. And have you been busy? Has your group noticed that it's a bear market? Uh, look, I've been through a couple of bear markets and um, the nature of work shifts when there's a bear market. Obviously, there's been, I think Australia's not been alone in many places seeing a, a big drying up of investment capital earlier this year, which is not unexpected after what happened last year and including late last year. Uh, we're probably seeing an uptick in, in potential disputes coming in, which we might not have seen when there's a bull market and people are making sufficient um, success that they can deal with these before it gets to lawyers. Uh, I think we're seeing a lot of businesses now realizing that regulation's coming and wanting to de-risk. So we're helping a lot of people go through and say, right, uh, it's it's a good time to keep building when it's a bear market, but also look at, okay, what risks are facing the business? We're just seeing also a maturing of the space. So early exchanges that would have been you know, focusing on just trying to build out and make sure they're successful before actually getting all their house and compliance in order are really making an effort to make sure that they're fully compliant because they need to be license ready. People know licensing is coming. So any of these um, crypto businesses which are going to be impacted by licensing or might have to interact with a licensed um, provider have to clean up their um, operations, make sure things are being run in a more boring and sensible way that's less risky. But that's not bad because when someone is getting license ready, they're also getting acquisition ready. And I've unfortunately seen you know, a few deals where someone comes in and says, yeah, my business wants to be acquired. And we go in and go, right, and we find there's an awful lot of work needed to make it acquisition ready because uh, when a buyer comes in, particularly um, a bigger VC or investment vehicle, they're going to want to run the ruler over it from a due diligence perspective. And that's the same as the early tech bubble, right? And, and the internet boom as it went through and people building up, even any startup, it's the same as everyone. If, you start, if someone starts a startup, they get a focus on expansion to try to make sure the value proposition works and, and minimum viable spend on whatever they can. But they do reach a point where they get a bit bigger and need to then go, okay, we need our governance controls properly in space, in place, we need to have documenting processes and procedures. So, um, which is just better for running a business anyway. And it's a bit more traditional. There's a lot more tech that can help automate that now, even than there was 10 years ago. And AI is certainly helping in that space as well. So reducing those costs is awesome because no one likes compliance costs. Um, they're viewed as a necessary evil, but they are important. So that if there is a regulatory investigation or a license that needs to be acquired or an acquisition opportunity, that business or project is ready to go and do that quickly. So as, as we're seeing a bit more of that. Um, and I think that as we start to move into a framework of licensing, there'll be more license applications that are needed. Um, and hopefully we'll have some laws coming down here and potentially some in New Zealand that'll need uh, interpretation and, and advice around as well. So uh, it's definitely a busy space. There's a lot more work to come, you know, just for regular builders in the industry, as well as those supporting them in the accounting advisory and legal space as well. Uh, so it's a space I've certainly really loved being in to date and, and see as a space that I, can't, I couldn't imagine leaving in the foreseeable future. All right. Uh, excellent. Good to hear what you're up to. Good to hear that uh, there's there's lots going on. Uh, may, 
maybe not so good to hear that we're still sort of waiting for a lot more clarity on some of these things, but that there are people that are working on it. Um, so nearly out of time here for our session. I got a few rapid fire questions for you before before we go. Uh, Mike, you you nailed my accent down to the nearest province, so <laughs> which people wouldn't be able to do without insider information. Uh, so first question is uh, Canada or Australia? Oh, I love them both equally. <laughs> like 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 exactly equally. Well, I met well I'm married to a Canadian, so <laughs> does that help? All right, all right. Uh, you love your kids equally too, right? Exactly. <laughs> Uh, okay, question question two, uh, law or code? Well, it has to be law. <laughs> and how does smart contracts fit into any of this? Uh, they're going to play a really important role of keeping a huge amount of disputes out of ever coming to lawyers. They're going to be helping us do things faster and cheaper in the future. But, uh, you know, spoiler alert usually applies. They're not usually very smart and they're not actually contracts at law. Is Bitcoin a security? No. And final question for you today. Who is Satoshi? <laughs> I don't think we'll ever know. <laughs> I think there's a there's probably a list of people I would suggest it's not who would be familiar to your listeners. But um, <laughs> I think it's best we don't know uh, is, is how I'd answer that. Is I think the fact that he's not known and anonymous was so powerful in the early days of Bitcoin um, and remains an important part of the, the that early narrative of, of what Bitcoin stands for. That I think it's I think if we found out definitive proof of who it was, it'd be, you know, like finding out that Santa Claus doesn't exist or, or finding something out that you go, oh it's good to know, but I kinda liked the mystery. It's, it's good to have a bit of mystery in your life. All right Mike, thanks very much for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. Really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us, folks. Look out for the next episode of the Blockchain New Zealand podcast, probably in the same spot you found this one. Cheers. Cheers.